This is the Reading Teacher's Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Hi, welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. This is our fifth season and it is episode 10 and we are going to be chatting about a topic that many of you have wanted to have us talk about for a while and that is decodable text and we brought one of our favorite literacy friends on the air with us here in the Reading Teacher's Lounge to talk about decodable text with us because she knows more about them than we do. So welcome to Emily Gibbons from the Literacy Nest. Thank you for being here. We wanted to have you on the air, honestly, since our first season. Yes, thank you, Shannon and Mary, both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I love talking about, <laughs> about decodable text. I love writing decodable text. So I'm uh, thrilled to share um, any tips and, and um, advice I can on this topic. <laughs> Um, Our listeners probably know who you are because we've mentioned you and the Literacy Nest resources for a while, Um, and we constantly put you in the show notes, but can you tell us, um, if people are new to you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do within the world of literacy? Yes. So I'm Emily Gibbons, and uh, I I wear many hats, but under the umbrella of um, my online business called The Literacy Nest. So uh, I'll get into that in a minute. First of all, I'm a mom of four. children. Um, I am a a structured literacy dyslexia specialist. So that means that I work in reading intervention, um, specifically using the Orton-Gillingham approach with children in a private setting one-on-one. And I absolutely love that portion of my job because I really feel like I'm just making such a difference in the lives of these children that I do work with. I was a classroom teacher for for 12 years um, and then transitioned into private intervention and just absolutely love the process and love working with these kids. Um, And But with uh, my online business, The Literacy Nest, it's a collection of different things. It's online resources for teachers who really are working specifically with students who are challenged readers. Uh, It's sharing knowledge about structured literacy in Orton-Gillingham and dyslexia awareness, because there was a real need for that uh, 10 years ago when I began my online business. There just weren't very many resources out there for teachers or even for families. Um, I also have several other other initiatives uh, with some professional development with Building Readers for Life. Um, We run conferences and we'll be actually running um, a monthly membership starting really soon with that, which is exciting. And um, but I've created some other resources like uh, Word List Builder, where people can customize and create their own resources for reading intervention. Um, I also have a podcast, so hopefully people will want to tune into that and uh, learn a little bit more about me. And that is called Together in Literacy because I pair up with another dyslexia specialist named Casey Harrison. And she and I have a great time together (laughs) on that podcast. So uh, that is in a nutshell. And I've also published some decodable books myself uh, through um, a company called Hegarty, which people may be familiar with. 
and looking forward to publishing more in the future. Um, I just want to add for our listeners and also to you, Emily, I started um, my OG practice about 10 years ago as well. And when I first came across your resources, I was just so excited. I finally found somebody who gets me, who understands that I need a little bit of like visual structure so that I can prepare lessons in a really reasonable, um, efficient way and using fun games for the readers that I'm working with. And so I just, oh, I was so excited. I actually asked for your first um, bundle for a Christmas present. <laughs> that was my first Christmas present. I wanted um, my- oh, that um, is so lovely. Oh I my know. goodness. And I got a laminator and I just like set set out to work. So baby would be napping and there I was just laminating away. <laughs> And now I've kind of transitioned to more digital uh, resources too. And so I just wanted to personally thank you because um, your resources have really helped me feel more confident in my ability. Um, but also I love following your blog and um, yeah, you you present yourself in such a way that is um, so friendly and approachable. And um, I really, I just wanted to share that I really appreciate that about you. Thank you so much. That is really thoughtful. I remember when I was first Orton Gillingham trained, I was still a classroom teacher and I felt really isolated because the other teachers were like, what's Orton Gillingham? Like, what, why are you doing that? And there was, I, it just, I couldn't find my, my team of other Orton Gillingham educators that were like-minded like me. So they all thought I was a little crazy crazy. Uh, yeah, I totally felt because the same way. We were, you know, very, very ingrained in balanced literacy at the time. And um, so it just, it, it's, it's creating, I, I guess, in a sense, this online community so that people can not only learn, but also find the resources. And I've met so many just wonderful, wonderful educators um, all over the world uh, through the Literacy Nest. So it really is um, an honor and a gift to uh, serve others in this way. And I really truly believe I have the best job ever. Sometimes I feel like um, there are not enough Emily's to go around, but I do the best I can. <laughs> we appreciate you doing the work um, for well, what we get you. from you. So tell us what are decodable books? Like how are they different from um, maybe the guided reading level A to Z books that we know um, in our book rooms, or maybe also even books that we see in the bookstores or in our media centers. Okay, so um, your decodable books, uh, try to imagine, and I'm using this analogy from um, one of the authors of phonic books, Tammy Rice Frankfurt, who is lovely. And she describes our decodable books as are training wheels to reading. They are the books that we want to use to develop the foundational skills of reading. There are there are many different types of books that we have in our classrooms, but the decodable books are the ones that are suited best to teach the foundational skills of reading. And they are the training wheels because if you imagine a child first learning how to ride a bicycle, sure, we could pop them on a bike with no training wheels and, you know, wish them good luck. But why would we do that, right? We want them to develop, to develop their balance. So we typically put on training wheels so that we can help them learn how to catch their balance. And then eventually, what do we do? We take the training wheels off. So decodable 
multiple books are not forever. They're just to develop these foundational skills of reading so that students can learn how to decode. And what there are some key factors we want to keep in mind with decodable books. First of all, they'll be phonetically regular. So they'll focus on a particular phonics skill or phoneme-grapheme relationship. And there will be a high frequency of those words, a variety of words that will follow that particular pattern or skill throughout the book. And we want a higher frequency of those words that are focused in that skill so that students have multiple exposures to practice um, decoding those words and building up their fluency. Decodable readers um, also, uh, so they're, we're working on accurate decoding right? They are not books that are picture, that have, that are picture reliant. That means students are not going to be able to use the illustrations if they get stuck on a word. There may be pictures, but they typically will not be something that is uh, supported based on, you know, any type of guessing that may be going on with the student. Um, we really want students when we're with decodable books to um, be working on developing their orthographic mapping. We want decodable books to be following a systematic progression. Now, since I am speaking through the Orton-Gillingham lens, I just like to put out there that uh, there's no one progression or scope and sequence that everybody trained in Orton-Gillingham or Orton-Gillingham-based practices that we all follow. It doesn't happen that way because Orton-Gillingham is prescriptive and diagnostic. But if you are in a school and you've purchased particular programs, you do want to look very, very carefully at the progression of skills so that Whichever skills you're working on with your student, you really should only be giving them decodable readers based on what you have already taught. This is not an opportunity for new material. It is the opportunity to practice what you have done in your phonics lessons. So it's really like where the rubber meets the road. We're bridging our phonics practice to application and trying to build greater application and I want to point out something really, really important, and that is decodable books are our lifelines. From a social-emotional perspective, these are books that are confidence builders. So there's a cumulative effect when we use decodable books. Children feel that sense of early success, like, like I can read this. That's super powerful. And when children feel that sense of success early on, what happens? They become more motivated. And then what do they want to do? They want to read more. So that is the cumulative effect of the use of decodable books. It really does support not only their foundational skills, but also their social emotional growth. So that is one side of the coin, which is the use of decodable books. Uh, now, I know many classrooms are wondering, but or wondering, okay, well, leveled readers. Well, we know those are not books that are organized or leveled by a particular phonics skill. They're, uh, they may be judged by like the number of words or number of sentences. They follow a text gradient. Um, they are categorized by levels of difficulty. The earlier leveled readers tend to be more predictable. 
So they'll follow like predictable sentences where students can sometimes just get into like this memorization type habit. Um, there may be a lot more high frequency words built into the text. Um, and the pictures sometimes in earlier leveled books are meant to be aligned with the text because um, some of the strategies um, from a balanced literacy perspective are to ask students to uh, look at a picture when they're stuck on a word, which we know really does not align with the way the brain um, learns how to read. You're taking taking eyes away from the text really disrupts the um, orthographic processor. So we want to be really, really careful with leveled books. I will say that there are benefits to having some trade books or leveled books in the sense that they're great for oral language, um, for read-alouds, for vocabulary or content knowledge. But these are not the books that we use to develop the foundational skills of reading. That is the key difference. We want to use the decodables to work on helping children learn how to crack the code, to become efficient readers, and we can use the leveled readers to work on maybe particular comprehension skills, vocabulary, content, like maybe say, you know, our classroom is studying bats and you might be able to find a short little decodable reader on bats, but when you think about some of the words that are surrounding bats in our content knowledge, like echolocation and sonar and vibration, things like that, those are vocabulary words that you may want to be sharing as you read aloud a book, but also calling attention to how those words are read, um, things like that. So, and you can also focus on comprehension skills, um, like pulling out like main idea and things like that. Um, but we really want to be using and utilizing our decodable readers as much as we possibly can, especially in those early years. Um, from a from an intervention perspective, you will see that an interventionist is going to be using decodables much longer for a longer period of time because our kiddos need many, many more exposures and we need to overlearn. And that is due to just um, other factors having to do like, you know, working memory, things like that. So I uh, just spoke for a really long time just then. <laughs> no, that was fantastic. It was really great. You did such a, an amazing summary of, of how these all work. And I love at the end how you were speaking about how if you have struggling learners, if you're in an intervention setting, you do need to overlearn. And I think, um, that overlearning is something that I ex try to explicitly teach my students. So there's um, a couple of little phrases that I use when I'm doing decodable phrases or decodable texts in general. And that is, this looks like it might be easy because it's probably shorter than reading a book. But this is what when you're reading the easy text, it makes reading easier for you. I want to make sure that you're really following it. And, and then I follow up and say, so in your brain, when you're reading, I want you to be able to look at these words and quickly say, oh, this is a multi-syllable word. It has a closed and an open syllable. You don't have to say that out loud to me, but in your brain, I want you to notice as you're going through those words so that the next time you notice another pattern like that, oh, guess what? I remember she said that. And we move on to the next skill. And I say, once you get that locked in, we talk so much about our brain processing too. And I say, remember, once you can get that mapped and stamped inside your brain, it's going to be there forever. So we want to make sure that it's really there 
Um, and, and you are really able to decode that word when you see it in another text. And then I'll, I'll say, and your homework is see if you can, when you're reading a book at school or outside somewhere, see if you can find a word that has a pattern like that. Um, and giving them that extra, like outside of my intervention space, how are they using these skills? Do all readers need that type of explicit? No, they don't. Do some children need that kind of explicit um, telling them this is how the whole process works? Yes. Yes, they do. Yeah. You know, Mary, great point there with calling attention to the brain with our kids, because, you know, Casey and I discussed this a lot on the podcast with the um, in regards to metacognition. And we really um, do need to bring that level of awareness and heighten that with our children so that they can really understand what is happening um, with their brains and so that they feel like they have tools in their toolkit to be able to, when they're stuck on a word, what they can do, or if they recognize certain patterns in words or syllables, um, or even particular morphemes in words, how they can feel more equipped. And to be able to express that, I think, is just so, so powerful. It's powerful teaching. And metacognition, you know, has been around for a long time. When We've always sort of talked about it under the lens of like the reading strategies, <laughs> but it really is a high, just such a more advanced level of thinking that goes even beyond talking about the explicit comprehension strategies. Um, It just can be woven so beautifully into everything we do, even from as simple as having, um, you know, uh, phonemic awareness tasks into um, decoding and and so forth. So I'm glad you brought that up. Well, I work on that a lot with my English language learners of them being aware when they don't understand a word, when they didn't understand the gist of the sentence, or like you said, oh, I used a decoding strategy. This was a word that I needed to sound out. I stopped. I didn't just guess. I actually used this and they're able to articulate the strategy they used. And then also they can even articulate that how they knew that that word was correct when they decoded it, I think is really important. Um, I also love how you brought up the SEL perspective um, of just that these decodable books are lifelines and confidence builders and have that cumulative effect. Because I think we can see that false confidence builder with the predictable text. Like if a student is reading, I, um, I can play on the playground. I can play on the slide. I can play on the blank. I can play on the blank. And it builds a false sense of confidence, but they're really just the only confidence they're building is that they can look at the first letter of that word, they can look at the picture, and they can make a pretty good guess of what it is that they're playing on. But they're not really building that orthographic mapping. And so when you're using those decodables, you're building the right kind of confidence because you're building that fluency. And um, we talked in the Reading Brain episode, which um, hasn't geared at while we're recording, but it will by the time our listeners hear it. And we were talking about building that millisecond response in in readers' brains. And it's not millisecond fast in a growing reader, but is millisecond fast for like us because we're fluent. And so you're building that speed when that connection between the meaning and the visual and the pronunciation are all happening. And so that's the right kind of confidence to build. And I'm also remembering um, when Wiley Blevins was on Um, a previous season, he said, he gave a quote from Jewel and Roper Schneider. And it's an old quote, it's from 1985, but it says, the types of words which appear in beginning reading text 
may well exert a more powerful influence in shaping children's word edification strategies than the method of reading instruction. So the books we're giving the kids to develop their orthographic mapping are even more important than the teaching methods we're using. Yeah, I think that's so powerful when we're feeling like that we're really empowering children when we're putting the right types of books in their hands right from the get-go. So many, the common cry among Orton-Gillingham teachers is that when our kids first come to us, we have to break a lot of compensatory habits that have developed. And people don't realize that, but when they come to us, and this is any age, this is not just, you know, maybe like some little second grader that came to me, really at any age, they're still trying to grasp at straws, like trying to look at that picture um, when they don't have to do that or just, or trying to just like look at the first letter and just make, get wild guesses. So we have to just really consider. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about being in Orton Gillingham is that uh, we see children, we see really people of all ages. And so we're not really working in our own little maybe first grade bubble where we're thinking about just, this is the way we teach children how to read in first grade. Um, I We're able to see longitudinally how things play out over time. And for those challenged readers that have been taught um, with like, you know, look at the picture and guess maybe and use and only being used, uh, only being exposed to patterned books when they're in reading groups, um, they really it takes a heck of a long time to break those habits. It really does. (laughs) Such a good point. And, you know, it also, I think even that little tidbit, and that is something that I often say, and I feel like I sort of got that scope when I started teaching special education because I was teaching multiple grades. It's very easy and common. And not a lot of people like to say this out loud, but to say, well, they should have learned that skill in first grade. I don't have time to teach it in second grade. And it's just like, I say, we just put it out there and try to demystify that as much as possible because they may have been taught it and they were not available to learn. I see that happening often. I also see that um, students are, um, they have so many gaps and so much frustration that also leads to not being able to learn. So you know, a lot of times I think distractibility comes in, um, especially when you see struggling readers, because it looks like they're not paying attention. And they may not be paying attention for a number of reasons. It may not go directly to an ADHD diagnosis, but I do hear that often. It definitely in my brain, it sometimes looks like laziness. I've heard other teachers say that before. Laziness is not being available because they're so burnt out and so frustrated and so beat down about the process of something that they're just not good at. And um, I think that, you know, demystifying some of these facts, or at least just looking at it through a different lens, is really important to call attention to teachers. Um, I've also heard decodable texts are very boring. And they may be boring for a teacher who is very fluent, Um, But that's not the purpose of them. The purpose is really, you know, the training wheels. Well, training wheels can be kind of boring for adults too. You know, (laughs) we know how to ride a bike. So um, you got to keep those training wheels on until they're ready to go. So I think maybe can we sort of steer this conversation into 
when do we know kids are ready for more complicated text and, and being able to pull away from those um, specific decodable texts? That's a great question. So first of all, I just want to remind everybody that if you're working in an intervention setting, then those kids are going to be with decodables longer. They're going to need overlearning. They're going to need multiple exposures. And the type of decodable text you put in front of them is really going to matter. It may be just at the sentence or phrase level. It may be a short poem. It may be only a half page passage before they can feel like they don't have that overwhelm with a full book in their hands because uh, we have some kids, and as you just mentioned, that have developed some negative self-talk and that's very real to them. And so that is one of Sarah, like the stumbling blocks with working with the challenged reader, getting through that and getting them really to trust the process of what you're doing with them. But so that is really, if we're thinking about challenged readers, let's just keep those things in mind. But with the typical reader, so someone who is just, you know, first grade, kindergarten, or kindergarten, second grade, there is some, um, we want to be, first of all, be mindful of the progression that we're using. We want a systematic progression that we're following of specific phonics skills for these kids. We want, and some of the suggestions have been if students can read um, with accuracy, CBC, diagraphs, blends, um, and decode maybe two-syllable words, maybe some three-syllable words that are just short vowel syllables, or maybe just like just one schwa syllable at the end, um, R control, silent E, then if we can get kids to be decoding those accurate with accuracy most of the time, then they can be transitioning out typically what I've seen for the classroom setting is that sometime by like maybe second grade is on average where kids are ready to transition out of that. But I'm going to put in a really big caveat. If you have made the transition with a particular group to using uh, more traditional literature, and if at any time you have a child that has reverted back to guessing, stop. They're not ready. That is my big statement that I would just like to make because if they have not, that that is a big red flag to me that they have not really reached a level of mastery to be able to handle that. And we want to go back and find those gaps and fill the, or and those little holes and fill those in with some more decodable text. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. Um, you want to make sure that you are watching for the signals that your readers are showing you um, when they read. And if they are appropriately stopping at a book, whispering to themselves, trying to um, switch out different sounds. So if they come to an AR um, syllable and they say, ah, r, ah, r, mm. r, r, and then they get to it, you know, you know that they haven't quite mastered that code yet. And so, um, if they are substituting in sounds appropriately, though, that is not necessarily a, a bad thing at all. So it, yeah. it doesn't mean like if they can eventually get to it within three to five seconds, I think that that's OK. If they are reading very isolated words one step at a time, especially one sound at a time um, mm -hmm. and they are mid first grade, you need to really come back and work on making sure that they understand Th says, or sometimes it can say, 
and making sure that they understand how to switch those patterns within their brain. That is essential. And if you um, want to go back to a, our season one episode, we talked a lot about um, when they're ready for AR and R control words. That's a that's a really good um, just quick listen to kind of figure out when are kids ready for that piece. <laughs> but I do think that once you get to the R control changeover, digraphs especially, um, and really switching the vowel sounds from a short vowel to a long vowel. Those are, those are the really big essential pieces. Right. Just such important, you know, kid watching and let's, it's okay. I guess teachers be okay with the fact that if you have to go back and find those areas that they need extra practice in, don't feel like it's a setback for that child because pushing them along is I think, really not going to benefit them in the long run. The other thing I think we have to be really cautious about is pulling the rug out too soon. Like if we're pulling, if we're taking the training wheels off too soon and Mary, you just made some really good points, then um, we, we are going to see them maybe have some, some sloppy habits maybe with their decoding only because they just haven't had enough exposure and time and practice. And I know within the confines of a classroom day, I, I get it. Like things are you know moving along at, um, have to at, at a pretty significant pace. So, you know, you have curriculum demands and, and timelines where they want to meet certain benchmarks and so forth. Um, but, uh, this is like an old piece of advice that my mom always told me it's better to, prepare than repair. It's almost easier to then to have to go back um, because it's just a, a bit more of an efficient process. It doesn't mean we can't repair. It just, it does take a little bit longer. Um, so I think if we can just be very mindful of these skills are happening in a progression and that we need to also make sure we're spiraling, spiraling back and reviewing um, we will get them to the point where, yes, they can move on from decodables, take those training meals off and um, develop into uh, more successful readers. And that's the ultimate goal here, right? We have people who are successful readers. Can you describe some of the structured literacy lessons that you do and then where decodables would fit within that lesson? And I know you're doing it more one-on-one, -on -one, but then could you also maybe share how a teacher could apply that and transfer it to, you know, like a small group rather, rather than the typical guided reading group with the level text, where would the right. decodable fit in? So within the confines of the Orton-Gillingham lesson format, which is really a structured literacy, you know, very systematic approach to a phonics lesson, um, the decodable text can really go in at multiple points in the lesson, but where I do tend to use it, I may start at the sentence level after I feel like we've had some practice with uh, phoneme graphy mapping and, and reading them. And then we'll start with short sentences, maybe midpoint in the lesson, and then move into more decodable text towards the end, which may come maybe um, before the dictation portion, where I'm dictating um, sounds, words, sentences, and then we read the decodable text, or I might do it after. after. It really depends on the child. Um, for some children, I may incorporate the decodable text mid-lesson, and then at the end of the lesson, I might actually use, um, have a very short um review decodable book, or if it's a more advanced student, then using I'll use a trade book with them 
So uh, in the words of my Orton Gillingham trainer many years ago, Mary would not, not not you, Mary, the other Mary, my trainer would say, it depends. So you do want to be mindful of using them. I wouldn't start, you don't start the lesson there, but giving them plenty of exposures to uh, manipulate sounds and words and decoding and encoding. And then you can transition into um, whether sometimes I just start with short passages some of the children that I work with cannot handle even a short passage. So that's why I recommend maybe just starting at the sentence level where they're becoming more sensitive to where the phonics pattern is and highlighting that and reading them out loud and then going through into a, maybe a passage or a book. It takes me a really long time with readers to kind of build up to these um, that, that level of skill too. So we often will do things... Um, in kind of sneaky gamified ways. And so if we're doing um, if we're doing just a sentence level, I usually have sentence strips and we may put them into a hat or a bag or something and we pull out one at a time. And right. um, if you're working in a small group with small group readers, you may give what a different sentence strip to um, you know, partners and partners could work together, or you may do um, even one at a time in your small group. So I, I definitely recommend that. And then the first step that I do is um, we look at the sentence and I say, you don't have to read it yet. I want you to look and scan and see if you can find a word that fits the pattern we've been studying. And I am really explicit about it. I restate again, what is the pattern that we've been working on? And we call attention back to a visual. And then we come back and we start um, uh, highlighting. And I give a chance for each of the students to actually explain what's going on within that sentence. So um, it may be if we're working on closed and open syllables, let's say. It may be also if we're doing, um, you know, CVC words. Where's the vowel in that word? Who can tell me which vowel it is? And, and we work word by word, and then we go back and actually read the sentence. Yes. I really feel like, and Mary made such a good point, just calling their attention back to what the focus of the lesson is at multiple points is so, so important. Even in the point where where I, where I get to the dictation portion of my structured literacy lessons, like through an Orton-Gillingham lens, um, there's a section where they have to, I may have them write down, what was the pattern that or particular concept we we're working on today? And they have to write that down and maybe need to explain. So what was it? What was today's lesson about? And then when they're um, giving, when I've given them sentences, okay, so I want you to underline three words that had, you know, long O in them. Um, that also calls their attention to the fact that if they did make a spelling error, it gives them sort of a um, a dignified way to locate the error before I have to say, okay, go back and check the spelling of this if they aren't quite sensitive enough to be able to pull out those errors. So, um, but yes, calling their attention to that, just getting them to be focused on what that lesson is, is just so important. Um, we are in such a busy and distracted um, world. And so to get kids to be keenly aware and metacognitive takes such a, um, a high level of practice. So I can't stress enough the gradual release of responsibility. We need to be modeling, um, you know, the I do it and then practicing together and then letting them do it. Um, and decodable readers can support that gradual release um, beautifully, I think, just something to keep in mind. 
um, in my first and second grade classroom, um, I used decodables like 15 years ago. There weren't even as many decodables on the market as there are now. And I had these like phonics poems books that are like so worn because I've copied every single page out of them. Yeah. And so, like, for example, the soft C and G, it was a little poem called like Cecil and George. They were giraffes who were friends. I remember that one. Yes. <laughs> and so what I would do with one. that one. <laughs> What I would do with that one is I would teach it the structured literacy because sort of whole group. And then um, with some of my, with the students who were like on level and advanced, they could go ahead and handle that decodable text with the mixed soft C and G. And I would have them highlight, I would have them underline, then they might sort the words that they had found into the soft G and the soft C patterns. And then I might have them write some sentences with the words they had found that were separate from the poem. But then in my smaller group, I might pull, you know, even just one or two students or a smaller group, and we might only work on that soft C. And I had like another pattern that was only the soft C, not soft C and G, or it might've just been a few sentences, like you said. And so we, it, 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 we go back to this all the time of just, you have to know your readers and what they can handle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And that's great differentiation too, to really, and the name of the game here, we want our educators to, to develop. And this takes a, a heck of a lot of practice being more prescriptive and diagnostic, really looking at what our students need, where, where they're coming from and, um, what we need to give them. So if you, you had a perfect example, you know, some kids couldn't handle maybe both soft C and soft G, uh, together in that one particular poem. I remember that poem. And, um, so by just finding, uh, text that just practices soft C, those are, that's a really tricky phonics concept for a lot of kids. Um, so by differentiating it out in that way, I think that that really is one way that we are being prescriptive and diagnostic. So. Well, let's well, tell think, teachers. Oh, sorry. Go Mary. I don't know. I was just going to say, um, I, this is the part where it gets a little bit tricky. So how do you find quality, um, decodables. And if you can't find them, how can you make your own? Because um, in in OG, and this is where I kind of got stuck when I first started practicing was, okay, I have all these skills now, but where are the resources? And do I have to reinvent the wheel for everything? And, and I felt like you were my lifeline when I was teaching that. So right. I often lean on your decodables. And I have to also comment to shout out to my um, kids, kindergarten teacher. They, um, we're lucky enough that um, most of the first and second grade teachers are OG trained at our school, which is really amazing, but they were using your decodables in kindergarten. Yay. So um, when my daughter was doing her online learning, she would come, she came home with a whole packet of all of your decodables and I went, yes, all right. So, <laughs> so I think that that's really helpful. Um, and they were using it in oh a really goodness. great way. Too. Yeah, I know. I wish, I wish my kids had that same experience, Mary, unfortunately, we don't. Um, but that's another story for another time. All right. So if we're looking for decodables, uh, so I can give some suggestions for the ones that that I use and besides my own. So yes, I, 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 I tend to write more at the passage level, because that's really, um, my students find that very, very manageable to handle. Um, people like the um, ease of being able to just print one out and use it in a small group setting. And then teachers like to create binders. So, and this is even what I do with my own students. So they end up having a nice collection of decodable passages that 
not only can you have them read maybe a new passage for that week or whenever, okay, now I want you to choose one that we read in the past. And they love doing that. And that can be, you know, at the sentence level, at a poem or or a short passage, but in terms of books. So whenever you make a purchase of decodable books, you really want to be very mindful of looking at the progression of skills and see how that matches with whichever curriculum you are following with your school. So at, I think at the earlier level, some of the decodables, you know, for the most part, um, tend to follow pretty much the same progression, you know, starting with like CVC and and then moving on to like some simple H digraphs and um, some constant and blends. And then you move into like silent E and so forth. But the ones that I find myself really going back to, and the, one of this is sort of an old one, but I do really love it is the primary phonics decodables. Those are really, really good. And, um, but another one I love, I love whole phonics. Jill Lauren wrote those. She's OG trained. I use those quite a bit. Um, I really love phonic books. Those are great. Um, I have also used High Noon, the Sound Out series for some of my older students that don't want books that look babyish because that is a big factor. Um, and I work, I work with older students as well. They do not want to be handed a book that looks babyish. Um, and that's really something to be very careful with when you make your selections. Um, I also love simple words chapter books. I think they have a very high level of decodability. The author has worked significantly on making sure that they have a high level of decodability. Not only that, have interesting storylines. And there is sort of this common misconception that the story has to suffer when it comes to a decodable book. And I don't buy that. I think you can have an interesting little storyline that goes along with the story. And you can have a point in the book where you can work on simple comprehension or maybe like a couple of vocabulary words. Because what happens with a lot of these books is you have words that have multiple meanings. And so you do want to spend some time maybe to address that for their language development. So um, that's just, those are some of the ones that I tend to go to a lot. Um, the books that I wrote for Hegarty, try to imagine that those are more of a culmination style decodable reader. So that if your students have culminated their learning of, you know, CVC blends and digraphs, then they could be ready for the first book in that series, the Toucan series. And then it progresses further. And I have a um, presentation and a document that shows how those books align if you were to follow a particular phonics progression like the one I use with OG. Um, if you are working with older students, and we're talking like even middle and high schoolers, um, once again, High Noon is great. There's another publisher called Saddleback Publishing that creates decodables for like middle and high school students that have more um, sophisticated content and topics that wouldn't seem um, babyish to them. Um, but the beauty of, I think, going back to the passages is there are no illustrations. These kids have nowhere to hide. <laughs> like you are purely working on your decoding here with this. Um, but once again, like you can have a little storyline in there. It can be humorous or, or interesting. Um, so just a few things to keep in mind.
Thank you. I wrote all those down. Thank you, especially for saying about Saddleback, because I've ordered a bunch of high noon books last year for my um, third through eighth graders who are still struggling with decoding and fluency. Um, and it's not enough because they're, they're every, the kids are loving them first off. I mean, they're coming every single day and wanting to check out for my special little library, but I will look at Saddleback as well. I like Flyleaf too. I ordered the Flyleaf yes. series um, with some Title One funds and they're beautiful and colorful and the teacher's editions are really great. And since the pandemic, they've had them for free online where you can project it on the whiteboard, which I think is really great. Um, we're going to link in the show notes, um, University of Florida Literacy, is it Institute? I can't remember what the I is. Anyway, UFLI um, just created like a great reading curriculum over the summer and finally published it. But they also um, included decodables that they made to go with that, their beginning reading curriculum. And they give you um, those printables for free online, which is really nice. But then they also made um, a scope and sequence linking chart um, that they've made available, um, I think on Google drive. Um, and so we're going to share that link where you can, um, many of the ones that you mentioned, like phonics books and primary phonics and things like that, like where, um, which book to use with which, you know, if you're working on short a, or if you're working on the blends or whatever, which books to use, which I thought was really helpful. That's a really yeah. good, uh, a great thing to share. I didn't even realize that that was a, a thing. So, I yeah. highly encourage our listeners to check that out. That's really amazing. I love that it's free as well. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, and if people are thinking about like grant money to be able to develop like decodable book rooms or, you know, libraries, um, I, I mean, that's just, that is just a wonderful opportunity to really speak to your school admin and say like, we need this, please help <laughs> and get that, get those decodable book rooms going so that people, that all children can benefit, not just your um, intervention groups. Well, and then there's, there's just more variety, you know, like, like I said, I only have that like one poem to use with my sounds and the kids would have to reread it almost every day, or I'd have to spend my time and energy creating my own little decodable sentences and text. And now let's say you're working on short A, you could use a passage one day that's printed. Then you could use one of the UFLI, UFLI ones one day. Then you could use the Flyleaf one one day. And then there's just so many and the students are still practicing the same sounds and the same words, but in different ways. And that just builds that orthographic mapping just so much more strongly. And Mary mentioned, you know, if you thinking of, you know, finding words or even thinking of writing your own. So um, just to further, <clears throat> excuse me, to further the discussion. So if you go on my site, theliteracynest.com and go to my desktop application word list builder, that is a unique desktop application where you can search for words by phonics skill. You can choose the words that you want and save them to folders and then you can populate those words. So like insert them into templates, like maybe flashcards or games or, um, you know, word banks and things like that, where you can put sentences in there so that you can further their practice even more and differentiate if you're looking for like even more practice um, beyond um, not only your decodable books, but also if you're looking to just kind of gamify things a little bit and make things fun and interesting for kids, it, that's just one other tool. Um, but I also had a, a writer reach out to me that writes decodable books and says, oh, I could actually 
use the search engine to try and find words when I'm writing my passages or my books. And I said, yeah, you could. <laughs> so that is just one other, I guess, nice additional benefit of the site. So if you um, go on the Literacy Nest, you'll see that. Just click on Word List Builder and it'll take you there. Yeah, I definitely recommend that as well. And I was thinking, you know, that that's such a great way to start building um, your your unique repertoire of of what you need. So especially if you're working on um, just a skill that you, I can't even think of a, of one that like I would need right now, but um, let's say DGE words, um, for yeah. example. And so I feel like that the DGE follows the short vowel rule. And so a lot of times if kids have mastered floss, and then if they've mastered the TCH and the CH differentiation, then they usually are pretty quickly able to figure out words with DGE. Um, but let's say you have a student who hasn't been able to do that yet. Going on this list and and populating some words, creating some additional practice for them, um, I think that would be a really useful tool. So I'm glad that that you shared that. Yeah, no, it's it even for my own lesson planning, it has really really helped me tremendously. So yes, I encourage people to check that out. <laughs> yeah, we'll link that in the show notes as well. Thank, Thank you. you. So Emily, is there anything else you want reading teachers to know about decodable text and how to use them? Well, you know, Mary mentioned this before, but I can't stress enough that if, you know, to some adults, they may feel like, well, this isn't very exciting. Stories are kind of mundane or um, maybe even a little contrived. But at the same time, I think that decodables have come a long way. I think there's a lot more variety. So our understanding maybe as an adult of what a decodable looks like um, really is just something we need to look at and be very mindful about. Like, are we looking at these books through the lens of an adult or can we really put ourselves into the shoes of a child who is just learning how to read and thinking about how they're going to feel when they experience success with this book? And we can't underestimate that enough. That is just, a, just such a powerful feeling for them to feel like I read this book and we gave and with good intention, we were providing them with the foundational skills that they needed, that we know are really backed by the research, okay, that are not just patterned, or we're not encouraging them to, you know, oh, if you get stuck, look at the picture. No, we are really providing a solid foundation for them when we offer these decodable books to them. And once again, they're not, it's not something that you have to use forever, but just imagine that the work that you are putting in place by using them is setting the stage really for their lifetime. And that, and when we think, in, I think in terms of that, then you'll realize that this, the long-term benefits um, are just, so there are so many that we just cannot ignore or overlook. So um, I just encourage everyone, if you are, if you have had a negative um, outlook on decodables in the past, to please take a second look, look into the research of, you know, why they're working and how they're helping children. You know, we in the Orton-Gillingham world have used decodables for years and years and years. And we just love that the word is getting out now to more educators that yes, these should be in classroom settings as well, not just in the intervention setting. And I think some people sometimes think that decodables only belong in the intervention setting, but um, they can benefit uh, the majority of your class. So um, definitely um, keep in touch with me if you need to learn a little bit more. I even have my own episode on why 
um, how decodable text support social emotional learning. So you can um, listen to that episode on the Together Literacy podcast. Um, but I just look forward to seeing more and more schools just join in this conversation and um, and really making this transition. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to add too that um, we will link to your episode in our show notes. So just. I keep saying that, but look, definitely look at our show notes for this episode, which will be on your podcast app and then also on the website, um, on our website for the, for this individual episode. Um, one of the links I'm going to include um, as well is um, an article. Thank you so much. So, um, and- <laughs> sorry, go ahead, Shannon. I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, on readingrockets.org, which we link to them all the time, Margaret Goldberg, um, the co-founder of the Right to Read Project, um, gave a great suggestion of sort of what to do with all the predictable books. And she gave 10 ways to sort of make your predictable text in your classroom more like decodables. Mm. And so those are some ideas of just where you don't have to throw away the books, but you can repurpose them in a way to, um, like like I said, um, the Julian Roper quote um, of just making the the books build the reading strategies that we want the students to have. Yes, absolutely. Well, I will. Um, I'm curious about that article, so I will have to look that up. <laughs> it is a joy to have you on our um, reading teachers lounge because it's so nice to be able to just chat and and have people who um, are super knowledgeable and have the answers. Because I feel like, you know, just as you alluded to at the very beginning of the episode, sometimes you feel a little isolated um, when you are doing the research on your own, or even just at the beginning journey of understanding the science of reading, or um, maybe you're just a new teacher and you just haven't had the experience yet to build it all up. So talking with people such as yourself who have been in the trenches have have really like put the resources out there that are so great. I I just really appreciate speaking with you. And the care that you have for your students just comes through in everything you speak about. And that's, that's the other part that we know teachers don't go into this field without loving their students and wanting to do what's best for them. The pressure feels really strong. And um, we know we only have a limited time with them. So I think that the resources that you put out make people work smarter, not harder. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for your time today. Yes. Thank you so much. People can definitely reach out to me, but the best way is just to go to the literacynest.com and, and everything is there. Um, you can also find me on, on social media as well. Um, but yeah, no, thank you so much for having me and I'll be happy to, to join you back here at any time. You just let me know. Thank you so much. And we really appreciate it.